Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Is there a Trump effect taking hold in Western Connecticut? Are state lawmakers paid too much or too little? And should we be looking at Rhode Island as a beacon of sensible government? Those are a few of the stories we'll tackle in the wheelhouse. Our weekly news roundtable. You can join the conversation as always, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us as always is Colin McEnroe. He's the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hi there, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankosky. Suzanne Bates is here. She's director of policy at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Uh, Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And David Collins is a columnist for The Day in New London. Hi there, David. Good morning. Thank you. Well, we're going to start with the state budget, as we so often do here. And before we get into some budget revisions that the governor put forward uh, yesterday to try to negotiate further with the state lawmakers, uh, the layoffs have has begun. State employee layoffs have started. First pink slips going to the Department of Children and Families and Mental Health and Addiction Services. A few hundred jobs so far, Colin. The governor has basically warned there's going to be maybe 2,000 layoffs. Yes, they're starting right now as they're still trying to plug budget holes. What do you see in these layoffs right now? Well, I mean, obviously, layoffs are never a good news. Never good news. No matter what you think about state government, no matter what you think uh, about uh, about how people are compensated, or or I mean, layoffs are usually the worst option. Uh, they take uh, a potentially useful worker. A lot of these people, because of bumping rights and seniority, a lot of these people are going to be like the front line people that you deal with when you deal with a state agency. So those people are removed from the potential to serve you or serve their client populations. You know, in places like Connecticut uh, Juvenile Training School. Uh, you know, the, these are po- often populations, whether it's that or somebody with a significant disability, where the person who's working with them is a person they know and trust and 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 can do kind of special things. And it disrupts uh, their world when, when that person goes away. Uh, and then that other per- that person who's laid off is also no longer a functioning member of the kinetic economy, can't buy stuff, can't you know pay taxes, all, all that kind of stuff. It, to me, it's the least desirable option. And I'm sure there's a counter narrative to all this. But as I was saying in the emails that we were circulating this week, I always see it as a real, fu- a real failure of the collective bargaining process. It just seems to me as though uh, and I, I do, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this. I, I'm frequently told that I'm wrong about this, but I kind of blame the state unions a little bit. It seems as though they'd rather, because of seniority and bumping rights, leave a, a bunch of these people out there dangling to, to be laid off rather than kind of open up the hood and get under there and see if there's a way to rejigger this thing a little bit so that the pain is more evenly distributed. Right now, the pain all falls on the people getting the layoffs, and then, then everybody else is insulated from the pain. My idea of what a union does is look after all of its members and to find a way to share that pain. Suzanne? Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, it is painful. You know, anyone who knows someone who's been laid off, I mean, it's incredibly damaging to their psyche to get laid off. It's very difficult to watch, you know, up to 2,500 state workers having to get fired, you know. But but here we are. We're at a place where we've been raising taxes and cutting services at the same time. So that tells you that something's off. You know, when you when you raise taxes last year by a billion and a half dollars and you still have to cut, you know, half a billion out of the budget and something's growing too fast. And that's 
the state employee compensation, debt service. There are parts of the budget that are growing so fast it's pushing other things out. And it's, you know, so so we, here we are. And and why won't the unions reopen the contract? Hard to say. And, and what do you make of the fact that as the layoffs have begun and the threatened 2,000 layoffs, which I think everyone has known are going to come, that the governor is still in many ways negotiating with the legislature over what the budget package looks like before the end of this, uh, this, this term in the beginning of May. I mean, we're still trying to find savings outside these layoffs that we know are going to happen. Right. Well, I mean, the legislature put forward a bu- budget that only cut $550 million, even though, even though they knew that there was $930 million that they had to cut. So they were sort of saying, well, maybe maybe revenues will come in better, even though they haven't for years. You know, and the, the governor ha- took this extraordinary step of putting out another budget and cutting out even more money. And so here we are. I would certainly agree that the layoffs are the last resort. Even if you want a, a smaller government, that's not the way to get there. And it's painful for everyone. It's painful, as Colin says, for the economy. And I think in this case, uh, you know, the state workers really, it was the governor's last resort um, as he is cutting uh, services and um, trying not to raise taxes again. And I, I think um, really, as Colin says, I think the, the unions really are doing their members a disservice not to sit down and try to be part of the solution and, and to, let it, to, to, to let it rattle on this way. Of course, the uh, the Hartford Current's Daniel Altamari, our, our friend here uh, often, reports that uh, some employees were let go over a conference call. The president of one union called it a terrible and inhumane way to handle the situation. David, there's... There's a lot of stuff in, in things like that. There's some optics piece of this. Some people may argue that this now has to be done, but then there's the way some of it looks. Well, yes, and, and that's unfortunate. And, and, um, but there, it seems to me they're, they're grabbing at the, the function or the, the, the way it was done and, and really not looking at the, at the issue, the, 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 the base of the problem, which is that you have to kind of restructure these, these bargaining um, agreements, and, and they haven't done that. And, and certainly some people weren't told. I mean, they're, they're, the way it was done maybe could be criticized, but, but it, it doesn't change the, 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 the problem and, and, and the solutions that need to be had. It, I mean, there is something to be said for doing this the right way. It's like you don't want George Clooney and Anna Kendrick to be uh, firing all the the state workers or laying off all the state workers. Uh, And in fact, some of these people uh, are saying, you know, the the ones who do serve client populations are saying, I wish I could have said goodbye to the people that I'm going to have to leave. These are, once again, often disadvantaged. There's one person who's quoted, I think it's in Daniela's story. I think her name is Johnson. She works at the Connecticut Juvenile Training School. Boy, talk about a grown-up. I mean, first of all, she said, I don't know, do I have bumping rights, senor? She goes, I would really it would be hard for me to do that to one of my fellow employees. But she mainly talked about the kids that she deals with. You know, it wasn't like, what a disaster this is. I just lost my job. It was these are the people that I care about. It's going to be very disruptive for them that I'm not there. Um, you know, I, and so when we complain about this stuff or when we, we say the fact that it's we make the argument it's not being handled well, we, we're not crapping all over state workers. State workers do really important stuff. But we are, in fact, I think, complaining about the process and all the ways that Suzanne and David have said, you know, it doesn't seem as though this ultimately was the best way to get through this. And, and we don't put that on individual state workers. A lot of them do really important jobs and take what they do very seriously. But I do put it on leadership a little bit, yeah. I think, too, the optics go both ways. It's not just the, you know, the Malloy administration that has some optics problems. I mean, here we've got the, the unions have been running this campaign, a very expensive, probably, campaign. They ran an ad during the NCAA tournament. I mean, those ads are like a million and a half dollars. So they're spending a lot of money over here trying to fight what's happening on the layoff side. I mean, that to me is an optics problem. So they're spending all this money, but at the same time, their members are getting laid off. 
why aren't they willing to reopen? Why aren't they willing to come to the table? It's I think it's it's got to be confusing to the rank and file. Our, our friend Kalila Brown Dean tweets at us, Colin, I'm not convinced pain sharing isn't happening here. Some get laid off. Others have their workload slash stress level increased, essentially saying that, yeah, people are getting laid off. And then a lot of people get a whole lot more work to do. Yeah. Once again, that's the less than ideal way to do this. Uh, I, I think. I think there is a lot of agreement about this, you know, that that, yeah, she's absolutely right. The people who are left are going to have to do the work of two people in many cases. And that's not great either. I I want to actually read from the Connecticut Mirror story about the other piece of this, too. As the layoffs happen, as we say, uh, Governor Daniel Malloy and House Democrats are going back into negotiations, somewhat forced by Governor Malloy here, because, as Suzanne said, they hadn't exactly put forward a plan that uh, that filled this budget hole. I'm going to read from the story from our friends Keith Vaneth, Mark Pazniokas, Ariel Levenbecker, and Jackie Rabe Thomas. Malloy warned legislators not to go home May 4th unless they accept his revisions or craft their own to balance the budget, pledging to call them back in special session the next day if they fail. In a plan drafted in response to an unbalanced proposal recently adopted by the Appropriations Committee, Malloy also proposed more than $100 million in further reductions aimed largely at social services and education to compensate for shrinking income tax receipts. They go on to say, David, that uh, Malloy offers unprecedented reductions in education aid to cities and towns while cutting more deeply into funding for Connecticut's hospitals. Well, these are two things that have been interesting on opposite sides. The governor has been willing from the start to cut into aid to the hospitals, but he's been unwilling to cut so far into aid to cities and towns, and that's what it looks like is on the table right now. Uh, well, you know, everything is on the table. I, th- I have to say, I, I give the governor credit for really opening the session, um, this, this session, with a pretty stern um, lecture. And, and he, he acknowledged that everything was on the table and, and that um, the cuts were going to be severe and deep. Um, and he didn't want to raise taxes again. He'd already raised taxes. And so I, I think it, it seems like the legislators legislature is trying to catch up with that. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're coming along in, in ways and in pieces and bits. But um, I, I don't think they still grasp the entire entirety of, of his message. And they're not they're not responding well. Um, you're making a face at me, Suzanne, like you want to say something. <laughs> well, I think, you know, part of it, what we're talking about cuts right now, I mean, part of it is that everything the state does, it does it more expensively. I was talking to some nonprofit providers the other day, and they can take care of an intellectually disabled adult for $120,000 a year per adult. And on the state side, that costs $400,000 a year. So what the, the problem is, is we're taking care of fewer people because we're spending so much more money per person on the state side. And when this, the cost of government is that high, right, so where is that money going? It's going into overtime. It's going into state employee benefits. When the cost is so high, you end up squeezing out services. You know, you end up squeezing out the people who need that help. And you end up having to lay people off to, to meet the, the growing costs. Well, one of the things we, we, we like to try to do on the program is is look into solutions, maybe look elsewhere for solutions. In your Hartford Current column last week, Colin, you dug a little bit into what Rhode Island is doing. And I, I think it's fair to say we haven't always looked to our neighbor to the east, Rhode Island, as a model of great govern, government or governance. But it seems as though they're doing some stuff to tackle their pension crisis, one that's not too dissimilar from ours. Yeah, although I will say that there are some things that I didn't know at that time that have perhaps uh, tarnished uh, a little bit my admiration for for Rhode Island solution. And I'll get to that in a second. But they did actually kind of roll up their sleeves. Uh, Governor Gina Raimondo, actually, while she was treasurer, spearheaded a very serious uh, pension reform effort. Now, one problem 
problem with pension reform, first of all, pensions are, are structured and understood differently state to state. Sometimes they're understood as contractual. Sometimes they're understood as, st as statutory. Easier to reform something that's understood as statutory. But it really doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't matter because you get sued either way. Um, so if, <laughs> and so this one wound up in court uh, and ultimately got settled. The judge said, look, I'm going to give you guys a chance to settle this thing. Uh, I'd rather you do it that way. And they did. Go Governor Raimondo and the unions settled it. Nobody was completely happy with it, and the unions were uh, feeling uh, kind of bad about it. But uh, one of them called it heartbreaking but fair, which is maybe the best you can expect these days in public service. And now the downside to this is a lot of the reform package had to do with hitting the target of 80 percent funding of the pensions. Um, so you have all these unfunded liabilities. Getting the liabilities 80 percent funded, and, and some of the union people are now discovering that a lot of that money is invested in these hedge funds where there are hidden fees. There's some accusation of cronyism, too, like who's getting those, who's getting the chance to manage those funds? Are they, in fact, people with connections to, to Governor Raimondo or, or somebody else? So, I mean, it's like there's never a complete uh, happy unicorns, uh, you know, and rainbows solution to these problems. But it does seem as though there was some, some st substantial movement made in Rhode Island and three or four other states. I mean, I, you know, I, I, like I spent my whole life as this screaming liberal, and now even without Suzanne making me do it, I'm re I read a whole Manhattan Institute report on pension reform, and now Su Suzanne gave it this other Manhattan Institute. I mean, I feel like I should just get a subscription or something. Thank you. <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, what do you make of all this? I mean, why in Connecticut taking there are the lead good of ideas on both sides, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And I think for too long here in Connecticut, they've ignored some of the good ideas on one side of the aisle. So, you know, there, pension reform has to happen here. And right now, all the pension reform plans that are on the table, Governor Malloy's put one out, um, the Treasurer's put one out, the Comptroller's put one out. They're all about how long should we take to pay off our debt. None of them are talking about making any kind of structural reforms to the pensions themselves. Mm -hmm. We have the most expensive pensions. Even with the reforms in 2011, they're still very expensive. And the biggest risk with pensions is that people can play politics with them, including where they're invested. I mean, that happens in every state. People play games with these pensions. That can't happen with a 401k or you know, a defined contribution plan. So, you know, they don't make the payments. There's just so many ways that you can play politics with a defined benefit plan that they become very risky for taxpayers and, quite frankly, for the people who are depending on them. Nobody plays politics in Rhode Island. Come on, <laughs> Suzanne. David? Um, I was impressed with a speech that uh, Senator Lenaris uh, uh, made uh, in the Senate when he voted. He was one of three votes against the last budget revision. And his reasoning really was that we haven't addressed pension reform. And and everybody in the in the Capitol building, he complained that day, say, uh, say well, you know, it, it, the benefits are in place until 2022 and there's nothing really we can do until then. Um, but he made the good point that really if you, if you start to uh, address that now, um, You'll bring the unions to the table, I think, and that's where that's where this kind of dialogue should begin and should happen now, not not uh, four or five years out. I just have to take one phone call here from Raven in New Haven. Hi there. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi. Um, I am. I have a question for Suzanne regarding you know the four thousand dollar, you know, hundred thousand dollar transfer from state to public. We know that when that happens, especially for home care workers. They get paid eleven dollars, ten dollars an hour—a very unlivable wage in the state of Connecticut, which I know that this show is very concerned about. Um, it being twenty-two dollars. Uh, so, how would you mitigate that? Because it is just plainly expensive to take care of these patients. The rest of that money um, to take care of people who take care of these patients—how how would you figure that out? 
And I think maybe part of what Raven's getting at too, Suzanne, is is if you've got home care in which people are getting paid $11 an hour to do that, so there's some worries about how good that home care might be. What do you say? I I would say, you know, talking to the nonprofit providers, I don't know the details of how they compensate their employees in terms of benefits and pay. And I know that they haven't had a problem attracting employees. And I know that if you're one of those, you know, a parent of one of those intellectually disabled adults, I mean, there are a thousand people waiting on a waiting list to try to get their children into home care. You know, you you want good care for your child? Absolutely. I think the parents and the family members of these intellectually disabled adults are going to make sure that the place that they're putting their child is, you know, a safe and, and well taken care of place. But, um, you know, the state is doing it for 400000 The nonprofit providers are doing it for 120000 That's a really big gap, yes. But, you know, we have 1,000 people on the waiting list. What What is the point of, you know, government? It's it's to help with these services. You could also change the specs for how those contracts are, are, are awarded, too. You could, I mean, if, in fact, you're concerned that people are being paid, you know, basically subsistence wages uh, and that that's what's competing with state service, I mean, you can change the specs so that they have to be paid a certain amount. Uh, you know, they have to be paid $15 an hour, $20 an that's hour. Right. And so maybe it's not $100,000, maybe it's not $400,000, maybe it's somewhere in between that makes a little bit more sense. Right. The state says that nonprofit providers can only pay up to $120,000 per um, adult that's placed in these facilities. So they're actually putting that cap on there. So, you know, I think the nonprofit providers would like to be able to to, to pay more per adult. But I, I, I got to take one more phone call here. Anne's in North Haven. Hi, Anne. Hi, how are you? I'm go- doing good. What's on your mind? You know, I listen to NPR all the time. And one of the concerns I have is that I'm getting the sense that the panel that's there today is very anti-state employee and anti-union. And I think the only thing that I would like to point out is, is that the fact that the governor has come up with disinformation regarding a $900 million deficit didn't happen overnight. And while there's definitely the need to make changes in the infrastructure of the state of Connecticut, um, it's not a crisis that happened yesterday. And I think that we need to look at the fact that our governor is the one who has not been, the fact that we keep having surprises about the deficits is not the state employee's dilemma. Um, And it's a bigger infrastructure thing than just identifying some of these things. So I'm just, I'm very disappointed in your panel. I listen to NPR all the time, and I've never been so frustrated by the fact that it's so one-sided. I, I, I hope that you are hardened, Anne, by by the, the notion that I wanted you to, to say those very things on our air, and I really do appreciate your phone call. David, a last thought? Uh, I, 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 I don't think it's the, I don't think anybody feels um, that it's the problem of the state employees and the state workers, uh, but I do think that that um, the unions have become a villain in this discussion, and I think um, it is new. I mean, the, the the deficits keep increasing, and this is a response to that. Well, and I'll just say quickly before we end the segment, um, maybe some people feel that the the unions are are a villain here. Maybe some people feel, and we've certainly heard people say on this show that the legislators are are villains here. And as we heard at the very top of the program, when Governor Malloy uh, was announced at the uh, rally for the UConn women's basketball team, he was loudly booed by people who feel that he may be a villain here. And the fact is, there's probably an awful lot of blame to go around, which more than anything, and I think is probably the theme of what we do here on The Wheelhouse with David Collins from The Day in New London, with Suzanne Bates from the Yankee Institute for Public Policy, and with our own Colin McEnroe. When we come back, we'll get into the question of how much should state lawmakers get paid? Um, There's a lot of interesting stories around that. That's coming up next, Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Suzanne Bates is here. Uh, she is from the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. David Collins is a columnist for The Day in New London. And our own Colin McEnroe is here as well. What's on your show today, Colin? Uh, perhaps appropriately, we're doing a show on fools and jesters. Uh, and obviously, there's sort of a great Shakespearean tradition. But beyond that, I mean, they were a reality uh, in, in the courts, not just of Europe, but dating back to 3000 B.C. There's also within uh, the, the history of China uh, a long history of jesters, too. We're going to explain to you who they actually were and what functions they played. Clowns to the left, jokers to the right, on on the Colin McEnroe Show, 1 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, today we're talking about a lot of things happening from the state capitol, but, uh, boy, here's a story that I just have to touch on briefly uh, with David Collins from The Day. The editors at The Day received an email from Stonington First Selectman Rob Simmons about his friend, State Senator Andrew Maynard. He wrote... It is simple but sad. In his current mental state, Maynard can no longer defend the interests of his towns, and his Democrat colleagues are more than ready to push him over the cliff. Uh, we have to get into some of the backstory here. One thing we can say, and that we've reported here in the wheelhouse, is that the Republican, Rob Simmons, has long supported Andy Maynard. Uh, this is, of course, the state lawmaker from your part of the world who sustained a traumatic brain injury and who was later in a car crash, sustained another injury. Uh, he has had a lot of questions raised about his ability to serve, and now people like Rob Simmons are saying he cannot uh, serve effectively the people in that area. Yeah, and I think it was a very tough uh, uh, call for Rob um, uh, because he does know Andy well, and they've been friends for many years. Uh, he did support his um, uh, re-election. Um, but I think it, it, yesterday it came down to um, uh, needing the help of a senator to represent his town, and his town lost a million dollars in, uh, in the appropriations uh, vote uh, for education funding, and, and it, became, it became personal, if you will. <laughs> so, so, th- so that's what we should do. We should wait until it becomes personal, and we should wait until there's an important piece of legislation that needs to be voted on, and then a year later we should actually make the decision? Well, that's a good point. I mean, this is uh, this is something obviously he's seen and other people have seen for a long time and, and have kind of not spoken up, and, and now he's speaking up. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the reality was it was personal. In other words, his personal friendship with Andy Maynard for a long time uh, trumped some of the, maybe the policy questions, and that's very much the way the legislature tends to o- operate. Uh, Rob was years ago a state legislator before he became a congressman, and it's a, it is a brotherhood and sisterhood, and they look after each other, and sometimes they look after each other longer than they should. Now, contained in what Rob Simmons sent in there is a very serious allegation, which is that ultimately leadership uh, on the Democratic Senate side has taken advantage of, of Maynard uh, to manipulate his votes, uh, to cast votes uh, effectively on his behalf that he wouldn't necessarily cast. It's not the first time we've heard that accusation. But coming from Rob Simmons, it's a pretty serious thing. And, and, and if that is happening, that takes it to me into a different category. In other words, it was bad enough that we were having a conversation about whether this gentleman was fully functional, fully able to carry out his duties. That's question one. Question two, is somebody taking advantage of that to get votes that he wouldn't otherwise cast? That, that's kind of more heinous to me uh, and, and, and very troubling. It's very troubling. It's very. It's a horrific thing, and 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 it's. It was clear from the very beginning that Republicans were willing to have a compromise here to let him retire, to have the benefits that he'll accrue at the end of this session, to have a special election, and to have someone truly who's able to represent the people in that district. And 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 the Senate Democrats rejected that because it was easy for them to have him there voting the way they wanted him to vote. And it's it's really it's a it's a it's a horrible thing. And, and Suzanne, I just have to ask. I mean, Rob Simmons says work with you at the Yankee Institute. It's something I asked Rob about, and he's 
he's been on the program a number of times, the fact that he seemed willing to accept a compromise in which we would be able to allow Senator Maynard to retire early and get some of the benefits that would accrue to him before he would normally be able to get these benefits seemed like the sort of thing that an awful lot of people who look at the cost of state government would look at and go, I don't know, should we really be doing that? Should we be extending benefits to someone who has not earned them despite the tragic circumstances that this uh, that have unfolded here? I think it was it's uncomfortable for people to to make those special carve outs for people just because they're of, of their position or um, right. But this is I mean, it, it's just such a difficult situation. It's such a sad situation, I think, on on all just from all angles. Um, so and I know, you know, Rob is a good guy. You know, I've worked with him. He's he's a good guy. So I think this friendship, it plays a, a part. It's you know, politics are not they're personal right at the end of the day. So that's that's what I think you're seeing here. Yeah. I want to turn to another story, David, in your neck of Connecticut. State Senator and first selectman Kathy Austin could receive a six percent pay increase in her salary from town hall. Just again, state senator and first selectman, uh, something her current salary, just under forty four thousand dollars, not a ton of money. How does a salary bump look right now? <laughs> it doesn't look very good when the when the layoff notices are going out and uh, uh, the the capital is on fire uh, fiscally and uh, uh, to, to 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 go along with a six percent a six percent uh, pay raise it's not a lot of money her salary is not a lot of money it's a it's a small town but still the the appearances of that are just horrible M- metaphorically by the way and fiscally it's on fire it's not actually on fire <laughs> just so everyone knows in case you're driving around the area of of, of the capital right now right that is both during the Revolutionary War it was on fire. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, though, as David is saying, it's not a lot of money. On the other hand, I mean, there's a lot of different questions that you could unpeel here, even whether it makes sense for somebody to be a state senator and a first selectman uh, at the same time, uh, to be drawing two different public salaries uh, and have two slightly different or maybe even massively different sets of public duties. Uh, but, I mean, I think larger than that is the conversation I think we're poised to have right now, which is how do we evaluate compensation among elected officials, uh, among everybody, but how do we evaluate compensation? Compensation uh, for state legislators and, and for um, for municipal officials, and the problem is, it's hard to find yardsticks. Well, it is hard to find yardsticks, and so we've actually been looking at a piece coming out in five thirty eight this week uh, titled "How much much should state legislators get paid?" Of course, every state legislature has a very very different system. Uh, New Mexico's state lawmakers are volunteer; they get up to seven thousand dollars as a per diem per year. Uh, there's new legislation out there to pay lawmakers a little bit more than that. The Connecticut legislator salary is around twenty eight thousand dollars. Of course, this is a part time job. In California, a full time legislature one hundred and $21,000 is what they make. In New York, it's a full-time legislature, about $90,000. Under a hybrid system in Alabama, it's about $54,000. We just have a minute here. We'll continue this after the break, Suzanne. But what do you make of all this? There isn't a really good yardstick right here for how much we should compensate state lawmakers. Again, how, are we having a hard time attracting people to run for office? I would say we're not. So, I mean, some people think we should pay them more because, you know, we'll attract more people if we pay them more. I think a lot to- of people would say we are having a hard time attracting people to, to run for state office. <laughs> I really would. No, I mean, there's an awful lot of uncontested races out there. There's an awful lot of uh, races in which, you know, people have been sitting in their seats for a very, very long time. Maybe more people getting into state government is what we need. I don't know that that's because of pay. And really, when you look at pay, what you need to pay attention to here in Connecticut as well is that two-thirds of the legislature also has a leadership position, and that actually bumps their pay up more. They get health insurance benefits. That bumps their pay up more. So... Well, well, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue this conversation after our break, because speaking of getting paid, we need to get paid here at WNPR. I'm going to turn it over to some of our colleagues who are going to tell you how you can become a member of WNPR and support everything we do here on Where We Live. 
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, spring is here finally, so is gardening season. On our next Where We Live, we're going to listen back to a recent roundtable featuring Connecticut Garden Journal host Charlie Nardozzi. We'll talk about gardening trends and soil prep and pruning and getting your garden ready for spring and summer. We're very excited about that. It's coming up on tomorrow's show. Today in the program, we're in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, talking about the news of the week, digging up some things that perhaps aren't so pleasant with Suzanne Bates, uh, Director of Policy at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy, David Collins, a call from the day in New London and our own Colin McEnroe. Before our break, we were talking about this new 538 report that talked about how much state legislators get paid. We were talking about Connecticut in the mix with other state legislatures. And there are all a series of different rules, Colin. And I want to get back to that. A lot of people have ideas that they're tweeting at us. I'll get to in just a moment. But what's your idea about how to do this maybe better than we're doing it right now with this part-time Fairly low-paid legislature. Well, this, of course, uh, brings up the McEnroe-Lebeau plan, uh, which uh, Gary Lebeau calls the Lebeau-McEnroe plan. Or I think he just calls it the Lebeau plan. But the idea is, uh, yeah, <laughs> professionalize the legislature, make it unicameral, cut way down on the number of them. Uh, I, I actually don't think there's any particular benefit in, in some ways, a significant hindrance uh, to the passage of important necessary legislation by having a bicameral legis- legislator. I, I see no real upside. I think we'd be fine with just one house. Uh, I, my number used to be 75 and 75, 75 legislators making 75 grand a year. I think it might have to be bumped up a little bit to around 100 or so. But still, streamline it, professionalize it. Uh, now, the problem is the legislature is never going to pass this. So Gary LeBeau and I will have to go around from town to town on a flatbed truck with, like, the Bacon Brothers playing guitar with us or something. I don't really know how you bring this about, but, <laughs> but that's my but current idea. It's an anyway. interesting plan. It's one we've talked about on the program before. What do you think of the Colin McEnroe planner, and do you have your own plan? I should like love this. Like I should love this because no, it's streamlined and smaller. Yeah. You know, my fear is there's the, in Connecticut, the, the, the power really resides in the General Assembly. And so if you if, if we instituted a unicameral um, legislature, you'd really have like the leadership of that legislature would be so powerful. I worry about not having that so, kind of sober second thought of the of the second body. Sober so, is not the condition they're in when they make these <laughs> second thoughts at the end of the session. But. Well, when we talk dream about on. when we talk about the, the, the dream, the vision of the part time legislature, you know, people who have other jobs and are just going up to Hartford to, to serve and, and do good work. There's there's obviously there's some good things about that. There's some bad things about that in in the whole. When it looks when we look at how the state is run, Suzanne, is there more good or bad in this citizen legislature that is getting paid a little bit of money to work part time? So that's kind of a loaded question. Like, is the legislature right now doing a good job? Uh, that, given the state of affairs in Connecticut, I think it would be hard for any of us to say, like, "Yay, they're doing an awesome job." But um, I also think that, you know, would it would a full time legislature be doing a better job? I mean, look at New York. There are dysfunctional states that have part time legislatures. There are dysfunctional states that have full time legislatures. I, who are the people who are running? How do we attract those people? I think those are bigger questions than even how much they're paid. Well, and we were getting at that point. I just want to read a couple of tweets here, David, before you go. Uh, Russell says, uh, there is a problem attracting candidates to run for office. I'm not sure pay is part of the reason why. I live in a one-party town, Shelton, so I think part of the problem is finding people who will run without a chance of winning. Uh, Kelly tweets at us, nobody wants to deal with the problems and get paid as little as legislators do. Uh, Bill tweets that getting people to run for public office is a huge challenge. And Mark says, a low-paid legislature means only the wealthy run for office. Well, that's I think that's very true, and and the wealthy and, and lawyers who have who come from firms that want influence in Hartford, um, um, uh, 
you know, t uh, real estate agents, people who have part-time jobs, otherwise retired people. But really, you know, let's open it up to everyone and people who could say, I would like to do this and, and I, I would forego my other career and I would pursue this um, as a citizen legislator. But, but make, it, make it available to everyone. And I think you'd, you'd, you'd hugely widen the pool of applicants. And I just want to get back to you, Colin. The, the full-time legislature that you and Gary LeBeau are proposing, it, the, a good side potentially is you've got people committed to this, getting compensated well for it. They've got staffs that are able to help them craft legislation and really work through some of the budget problems we have. I think Suzanne and maybe others would say that you have a full-time legislature there looking at making laws all year long. Making more laws doesn't necessarily make for a better running of state government, necessarily. Yeah, and I'm not I'm – not, first of all, it may not be the case that the legislature has to be – like in session making laws all the time either. I mean, you can you can allocate a certain part of the year for that and a certain part of the year for hearings and, and actually thinking about what you're supposed to do and stuff like that. What would CTN put on? Exactly. <laughs> right, well, but CTN is here today. And one thing that they're putting on, they have the new uh, half-hour sitcom Kissel, uh, <laughs> which is very funny. <laughs> What's up with these tuition hikes? <laughs> Um, okay, we're going to John Kissel is Jerry Seinfeld person. We're going to move on to another topic here. It's been a while, a long while, since we've had any polling data for Connecticut's presidential primary coming up April 26th. But the Emerson College Polling Society released a poll showing Hillary Clinton with a six-point lead over Bernie Sanders, from 49 to 43 percent. Uh, this now is starting to become more familiar to the state's television viewers. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. Yes, the ads are starting to run. Clinton has opened up five offices in the state over the last week. Hartford, New London, New Haven, Bridgeport, New Britain. On the Republican side, John, John Kasich came to Connecticut and spoke in Fairfield. What the delegates are going to do is they're going to try to figure out who can win in the fall, because that's the purpose. And by the way, I'm the only candidate who consistently beats Hillary Clinton in the fall. I'm the only one. So I'm going to forego my John Kasich impersonation uh, and, 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 and say, well, we're starting to see it now, Suzanne. We're starting to see Connecticut become actually a battleground state because of the strange nature of these primaries up to this point. Those of us who love politics love it. I mean, it's great to see that there's actually a debate and that we actually get to play a part in presidential politics this year. It's going to get ugly. I mean, just this morning I saw that in New York, um, the people who are opposed to Donald Trump are running an ad saying that he benefited from 9-11 um, reconstruction dollars. Uh, you know, it's going to get ugly fast, I think. So... I agree. It's it's great fun. When's the last time Connecticut had a, a primary that, that mattered and that people paid attention to? It's really interesting, and it's going to be interesting too because uh, the the dynamics of it, the the two uh, clearly uh, a Trump victory and, and a very possible um, Sanders victory will make a lot of politicians very uncomfortable in Connecticut. So that'll be interesting to watch. Well, and there are a lot of uncomfortable politicians right now, Colin. But I, I don't know that we're going to see the lead candidates coming through and spending very much time in Connecticut. John Kasich here. I don't know that we're going to see Hillary Clinton show up. It, this may turn out to be one of those states in which even if we get a Bernie Sanders victory, we get a little bit of a, a, a Hillary Clinton victory coming out of it going into the convention. Yeah, so because the Democratic side is totally proportional. So it's tough. It's tough for Sanders to get what he needs out of, his, uh, out of these proportional states. I mean, they're, they're all like this for him effectively. And uh, he needs big wins. Uh, he, needs, he needs to take a, a lot more delegates. Uh, and if you look at that um, Emerson College poll, m my guess is it's a little off and that Connecticut historically skews liberal will skew for the more liberal of two candidates in, in a primary. That doesn't mean it has to happen this time, but it's what's happened in the past. But, you know, so so she's not up six, so they're closer to even. So he wins by one. That doesn't do Bernie that much good. To me, the real drama is going to be over on the Republican side. Uh, they have a tremendous incentive because of their 
completely incomprehensible uh, primary system to keep Trump below 50. If he gets over 50, he runs the table uh, in with a lot of the, the delegate votes. It, it's not a total table because some of it drops down to the congressional districts and gets uh, apportioned out that way. But but if he gets over 50, it's not a good thing for the never Trump people. And I would expect them to – well, they are. They're putting a lot of effort into casing. Uh, some of the people that, that – there's a, a big fundraiser coming up on, on the 22nd of, of April. There's, there's people now who are sort of hashtag never Trumpians. Who, who will work hard on Kasich. And he's the kind of guy who, accent notwithstanding, should run pretty strong in <laughs> Connecticut. Sounds a little bit like he's from Pittsburgh, where he is. But, hey, I got to say, this is something that's showing up, not just as far as the party elites on the Republican side, Suzanne, folks who you know who, who maybe are saying never Trump. This is the story uh, out of the AP today. Ecuadorians, Dominicans, Mexican, Guatemalans, and Colombians previously content with permanent legal status suddenly want to become citizens and claim their right to vote. Later in the story, the local surge in interest and citizenship apparently is part of a national trend of Latinos registering to voice their objection one vote at a time to inflammatory comments about immigrants by GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. This is this is very interesting, and it shows maybe some of where the very large Latino population of Connecticut might be placing some of its bets here. That's, you know, watching Donald Trump interviews recently, I mean, he seems to be sort of already trying to moderate himself, you know, but I think he's gone too far. <laughs> I mean, there's just no coming back from, from where he's gone. He's made a lot of people very angry, and I have to say a lot of Republicans very angry as much as a lot of Democrats very angry with the rhetoric that he's used. And so I think we're going to – if there's any ads that are going to play here on the Republican side, I see them being anti-Trump ads to keep him from getting to that 50 percent threshold. And this is where I think it's going to get ugly. So. You know, <clears throat> who would have thought that Connecticut that sends Republicans like Rob Simmons and, and Chris Shays to, to Washington would, would uh, choose Donald Trump? It seems like a, a, a big surprise. I think people are angry. I think that yeah. Trump w- runs well among re- angry Republicans. And I think Repu- if you're going to – Republicans in Connecticut are angry with what's going on here and, and nationally. So I think that's why it might be running well here. Well, even also he has – even though he has these you know very extreme and unpalatable positions, if you look at the, the whole spectrum of his positions, some of them track – he's not a hard right – uh, conservative, you know, sort of boilerplate conservative like Ted Cruz. Uh, Trump is a more complicated animal. And, and in that sense, also, Connecticut is always like mavericks. Uh, you know, they, they, they pick McCain over Bush. Uh, they, they like people whose politics are kind of complicated, uh, not cookie cutter. That may favor Trump a little bit, too. But I do think it's hilarious that, you know, Mark Batten shutting down volleyball games and stuff like that was not enough to scare uh, people. But apparently Trump is. It could be really bad news for Mark Batten if a whole bunch of people in Danbury uh, registered to vote, uh, get their citizenship and register to vote. Do we think a Sanders win is going to um, embarrass the Democratic establishment in Connecticut that went so um, in for Hillary? Well, I will say, and, and they certainly are in for Hillary. These are the superdelegates as well. I mean, the, the Democratic establishment is very well ensconced. Here's one thing, actually, that I wanted to get to, David, is a little bit of the anger that's showing up uh, in this race between the, the Sanders and the Clinton campaigns has to do with Bernie Sanders' long stance on guns. Hillary Clinton has been hitting this hard, and as we come into Connecticut and New York next week, the specter of Sanders. Andy Hook and what gun legislation means to this race. Do you think that this is actually something that does show up in Connecticut at all? It's like the ultimate third rail issue here in Connecticut because of the terrible events of what happened a few years ago. You know, I think that the, the, that has put Connecticut in the spotlight for, for, for gun issues and for gun laws. Um, but I'm not sure that across the state, um, most voters 
feel that differently about the issue than they do in other states, uh, other similar states. I, I think um, I think the focus of Connecticut as being this this um, um, fulcrum for for gun debate is is not necessarily true. It may seem that way in Washington to uh, Hillary Clinton, but I don't and and. And to the governor, but I don't think it's true. Maybe to every voter across the state. But it's maybe Suzanne, not just about this one particular issue, but it's the way in which it it filters itself into the way people view Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton. As Colin said, Connecticut is a is a very liberal state, and it might often go with the liberal. But this is one position that many people have said clearly puts Bernie Sanders out of step with many many other liberals who feel very strongly about controlling how guns are sold here in our state and across the country. Well, I guess I guess that's, you know, will will people vote just on the gun issue in the Democratic primary? Is that the most important issue that they think, you know, for Bernie Sanders? I really think it's that this election this year is being driven more by economic issues. Um, So I I just don't you know, I I don't see it playing that big a role. If it doesn't work, it's going to be a big problem for her. Right. So because she doesn't have very many good wedge issues. This is a classic wedge issue that she's trying to use against Sanders because his economic message has resonated so well. So, yeah, this is a state that in 1992 went for Jerry Brown over Bill Clinton. Um, That's that would make her nervous. She certainly remembers that. Um, I don't know if the gun issue doesn't work. And I think David and Suzanne are making good points about why it might not work. That's not good news because she doesn't really have another really great card to play here. Uh, Just have a minute and a half left here, but in the wake of long voting lines in Arizona, some other states during the primaries, an interesting piece of legislation has come up at our state's capital. It would allow town registrars to reduce the number of polling places in primaries. Uh, Coming up on primary day, Colin, actually, we're going to be taking on this issue about how primaries work. I have all sorts of problems with the way the primaries work, not just here in Connecticut, but around the country. Is taking away polling places what we need to be doing as we get into a world where we hopefully are getting more and more people involved in the electoral process? I'm guessing it isn't. I have to be a little bit agnostic about this. I haven't thought about it very much. I think you should be a guest on your own show. You have more interesting <laughs> opinions about how to fix the primary system than I think most of the people you're going to book. I, I'm, I'm going to lay out my entire Dankowski plan Dankowski for how, plan, how we should yeah. fix the fix Get the a legislative system. partner. It worked for me. Full, full, uh, do, do we have a problem with fewer polling places moving forward, Suzanne? I think we have a problem with fewer people voting. I think the problem, part of the problem that we're seeing, and the, the legislation seems like a reaction to this, is that people don't vote in primaries the way they ought to. Now, hopefully this year that'll change because things are more exciting. But, I mean, really, we need to get more people out to vote. It strikes me that the the savings of of closing some polling stations on a primary day are so small um, compared to the the, the sense that you might get even a few more voters in a particular town. Just places for people to vote, probably a good thing. We'll we'll see how that uh, legislation fares. Uh, David Collins, columnist for The Day in New London. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to Suzanne Bates from the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. And thanks to Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. And thank you, Mr. Dankowski. Our program produced by Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown with Kion Wolf. Heather Brandon and Katie Tularski, Tiana Duquette and Ben Esty, our interns. Now we're going to turn to our friends at WNPR.org.